Friends, our scripture reading today comes to us from Matthew chapter 28, and out of reverence for the written word and the word made flesh, I invite you to stand as you're able for the reading. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Andrew, for our scripture reading this morning, and a big thank you to Dawn and Caitlin and the Chancel Choir. They already heard me say that at 8.30, but I still mean it. Um, thank you for leading us in worship this morning. A few years ago, I was up in Ohio for uh, Christmas break with um, Caroline's side of the family, and I had a four-year-old nephew there with me at the time, Declan. And we were playing this game with uh, the grandparent toys that come out of the attic, you know the sort. And it was a simple game, he was just handing me a toy, and I would just say, well, what's this one? And he would say, oh, that's a monster truck. And he would describe it, and then he'd hand me another one, I'd say, what's this one? And he'd say, that's a horse, and he'd tell me about it. And then he handed me one toy, and it was an old toy from a McDonald's Happy Meal. And the toy was a figure from the 1997 animated Disney film, Hercules. It was the figure of Zeus, the god of thunder. And if you've seen the movie, you probably remember what he looks like. He's got orange skin, wearing a toga, a long white beard, long white hair. And this particular figurine had its arm cocked back like this, holding three lightning bolts in its arm with its muscles flexed, ready to strike and smite. And... I knew that my nephew Declan had no idea who this was, because he'd never seen this movie. But I asked him anyway, Declan, who's this? (laughs) And he looked at me like I was being so dumb. And he said, well, that's big bad Jesus. (laughs) Well, needless to say, a theological conversation with my nephew followed. And this conversation took what seems to be the typical form of discourse of the historic church. We divided into two teams and argued about it. One side being team big, bad, powerful Jesus, and one side being team merciful, loving Jesus. And I got to be honest with you, team big, bad Jesus made some good points. Jesus must have lightning and strength to be able to conquer the evil of the world. Jesus can't be seen as weak. But ultimately, you'll be happy to know that me, along with Team Merciful Jesus, won this debate. Team Merciful Jesus arose victorious. It was easy in this instance because he was a child. But it was still an important victory nonetheless. It's funny because we often think about our deepest church beliefs and doctrines being thought up by these philosophers somewhere in an ivory tower surrounded by leather-bound books and talking with each other. 
But the lived reality is a lot of our foundational church doctrines have been formed because of weird moments of disagreement like this one I had with my nephew. There are moments like this where somebody says something and it suddenly becomes apparent that how we understand God is very important. A professor where I went to seminary, Dr. Thomas Long, reminded us that many foundational parts of our doctrines and beliefs weren't thought up by these far away, far, far off thinkers, but instead he said most of these doctrines are formed like river bridges built by armies. That is to say, they are assembled on the fly in seasons of need and are crafted in the field to bear the weight of a people who are marching on a mission. In other words, these doctrines are often formed because they have to be formed right there in that moment. Just like I had to explain to my nephew that Jesus doesn't throw lightning bolts at people. This is how the church works and how it always has. Well, today, I don't know if you knew this, but it's Trinity Sunday. Today is a Sunday that celebrates one of the most important doctrines that we have as Christians, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the Almighty Creator, the Only Begotten Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one and one in three. And I'll be the first to admit that the Holy Trinity may seem like this amorphous, difficult-to-understand thing. How can God be three and God be one at the same time? And why do we have to make it so confusing? And it is confusing. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement that eventually became our denomination, he says, and I quote, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I'll show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. It's difficult to understand. It's confusing. And if, it's, if we can't fully understand it, then who even cares? Right? Why is it even important to try? Well, to understand why it's important, we have to go back to a moment in the early church, similar to my nephew, someone had said something that made everyone pause and think and say, yeah, what do we believe about that? You see, here was the problem. When we read our scripture passage today from Matthew, Jesus commands the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the who? Yes, but even Matthew, as he wrote this down, had never heard of anything called the Trinity. He knew that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were revered and holy and supremely important to what we believe, but beyond that, if you asked him, he'd say, I don't know. Well, fast forward a couple hundred years. In the fourth century, about 1,700 years ago, there was a man named Arius, Arius was well-liked. He was handsome. He was a great public speaker and very popular with the people. And one day, Arius said something that made everyone stop and think and ask, what do we believe about that? Arius preached a sermon, and in that sermon, he said that Jesus was created by God, just like everything else. Arius argued there was no such thing as the eternal word. Jesus was made by God, just like us. And Jesus is very special and important, but could not have existed eternally with God before being here on earth. And here's why, Arius said. We believe God is perfect and all-powerful, don't we? <laughs> Which means God can never need anything, because if God ever needed anything, God wouldn't be all-powerful. And so, he said, if God was in a relationship with another being for all eternity, that would mean God was relying 
on someone else. That would mean God wasn't self-sustaining, independent, and all-powerful, and therefore, Arius said, there must just be God the Father. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are important, but they can't be God too. And he ended his sermon like this. If God relied on someone else eternally, that would mean God is weak. And lots of people loved what Arius had to say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They responded, God can't be weak. And this makes things a lot easier to explain to everybody anyway. We don't have to talk about a triune God. Let's just go with that. And it could have stayed that way. We wouldn't have said the Apostles' Creed in church today. We wouldn't have sang the doxology together. But there was another voice that spoke up and said, wait. And that voice that spoke up was another man named Athanasius. And Athanasius asked, what if God is showing us a different kind of power? What if God always, for all eternity, has been in a relationship? What if the Father and the Son were always together, always giving and receiving? What if there's a different kind of love and power that God is made of? And so if you can believe it, the church took its typical form of discourse. It divided into two teams and argued about the issue. There was Team Father Only who rallied behind Arius, and then Team Trinity who rallied behind Athanasius. And this side said, God can't be relying on someone else. That would be weak. And this side was saying, God's showing us a different kind of power. Why can't you see that? And just like in all the instances of the historic church in these arguments, some people listened to the other side and tried to understand, and some spewed out insults and called the other side heretics and refused to engage. Well, years went by, and at the end of the day, spoiler alert, Team Trinity won over the debate. The church affirmed a belief that we now cherish and celebrate so dearly that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed together in three parts, but one, always in relationship in a divine dance of unity with one another. My favorite analogy for this is thinking of it like a beautiful tree with roots and a trunk and branches all made of the same thing, but all doing distinct roles to bring about life. And that trinity is very good news for us today. Why? Because the trinity shows us that perfect power is not self-reliance or being independent or having enough power to never rely on someone else and do things your own way. But instead, it shows us that always, for all eternally, perfect power has always been giving and in relationship. Perfect power has always been living in love. C.S. Lewis, the practical theologian, said this. He said, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, God was not love. In the eternal relationship of the Trinity, we see that perfect power of love. We see the perfect power of love when God creates the world in the book of Genesis, when the Spirit hovers over the waters and the Son is present with God as the Word, with all things being created through Him. 
We see the perfect power of love when God speaks to God's self and says, let us create mankind in our image. All three persons shaping the clay and the dirt and breathing into it the breath of life. We see the perfect power of love in the moment of Jesus' baptism when the Spirit hovers over him like a dove and a voice booms from heaven saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. We see the perfect power of love in Jesus willingly walking toward a cross, totally surrendering himself and relying on nothing except the promise and relationship of God the Father. And we see that perfect power of love again when Jesus is raised from the grave. And after being delivered from death through this perfect power of love and unity of grace of God, our scripture today brings us to Jesus who is standing on a mountaintop. And we are with Jesus and 11 disciples on a no-name mountain in the middle of nowhere, Galilee. And the disciples, like us, are worshipful and they're doubtful. I love that they say that. They're there with Jesus, but they're asking, what are we doing here? What is Jesus about to do? But Jesus is smiling. Because this beautiful relationship in the Trinity, that perfect power of love with one another that he has eternally shared, that authority and perfect power is about to be shared again. And Jesus speaks the final words of the Gospel of Matthew. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I'm going to share it with you and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to close with an image. There's this great painting called The Trinity by an iconographer named Andre Rublev. And if you turn your attention to the screen in the sanctuary, you can, just kidding. I'm just making sure you're awake. I know that's a touchy subject. But I want you to picture this painting in your mind's eye. The painting, it's all painted in gold with some other colors mixed in, and it's all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sitting around a table. And on this table, they're all looking each other in the eyes, and on the table is a bowl of common food that they're sharing together. But the most interesting part of this ancient painting is that there is a fourth spot just at the bottom of the table where there is no paint. And instead... What historians have found are traces of glue on the painting. And what some historians believe is that glued right there on the painting used to be a mirror. So that when you came and viewed this picture, you would see yourself seated as a guest at the table. We are invited to come to that table today. To share in that wonderful, eternal relationship as co-heirs with Christ, that perfect power of love with God himself. And as we come to the communion table today, I hope that you see them. I hope that you feel and experience them. And I hope that you can receive this grace that is beyond anything that we can comprehend or imagine. In the name of God, our creator, our redeemer and our sustainer. Amen.